This week on the Defense Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the measures of success for bring your own device in the Army and the hypersonics future of the U.S. military. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022. Welcome to the Defense Scoop podcast. Every week you'll learn what's going on in defense technology. I'm the host of the Defense Scoop podcast, Francis Rhodes. This is debut week for Defense Scoop, including both DefenseScoop.com and Defense Tech Week. Our premier defense talks event is this Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. Brandy Vincent and Mark Pomerlo are reporters for Defense Scoop. They'll be on stage on Thursday with an all-star lineup of defense leaders. Welcome to both of you, Mark. I start with you. I'm not going to ask you to pick your favorite or the one you're looking most forward to on Thursday. That would be unfair. But what's the lineup? What's the tenor of conversation, the themes that you expect all the folks that you'll talk to to cover on Thursday at Defense Talks? Welcome. Sure. Thank, thanks, Francis. Yeah, very uh, excited for the lineup um, this week. Um, I think what I'm expecting folks to talk about is uh, these ongoing IT modernizations, right? Uh, a lot of the services and, and subordinate organizations are going through a lot of modernization efforts to uh, both kind of get a handle of, of their IT infrastructure and practices and then consolidate within there to see cost savings, um, efficiencies within their missions, um, any any one of a number of, of issues. Um, one, one thing I'm, I'm particularly excited about is um, hearing from Congressman Jim Langevin, the, the chairman of the Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Subcommittee on the House Armed Services. Um, he's announced that he's not running for re-election this year. So um, this is this is kind of it for him. He's been a, a pretty influential figure in the um, cyber world, not just in the uh, Defense Department, but um, as the the chairman of the the co-chair rather of the the Congressional Cyber Caucus. So he's he's had a pretty big impact on the federal and defense uh, cyber and, and IT world. So um, really interested to kind of hear what he's going to say about um, his tenure in Congress and and where things stand right now. I note that you'll be talking as Brandy will to leaders in all the services, Cyber Command, and others uh, in the lineup on Thursday. Um, is there something in particular that you will be listening to hear from any of these folks, or is it just kind of broadly what their agendas are, what their priorities are right now? Yeah, I, I think um, particularly from U.S. Cyber Command, you know, Dave Frederick, their uh, executive director, um, it'll be interesting to hear um how they've advanced some of their initiatives uh you know they they've really been touting their hunt forward operations where they send uh defensive cyber protection teams from their national cyber national mission force abroad um to actually hunt on other nations networks so of course at, at their invitation um but that really provides them a lot of key insights. One, um, it helps those partner nations bolster their own um, IT infrastructures, but then they can take those insights from um, adversaries operating on those networks and bring them home as kind of an early warning to both um, harden you know, US and defense networks and then possibly even use their, their offensive teams to kind of take action against that. But um, it'll be interested to see if, if there's anything or any advancements on that front. Um, Dr. Raj Iyer, that the Army CIO will also be talking. Really curious to hear how um, the Army's digital transformation, his his real big effort within the Army, is is advancing as well. 
We'll hear in the moment on uh, the Defense Coup podcast about the bring your own device pilot that uh, Dr. Iyer is starting in the Army and, and his colleagues there. Uh, Brandy, welcome. Same question to you that I uh, directed to Mark. Are there themes or uh, common threads that you expect to hear among the conversations that you'll be conducting at Defense Talks on Thursday? Absolutely. Thanks for hosting us, Francis. Um, piggybacking off of what Mark said, definitely going to have a focus on those big IT modernization efforts, all the buzziest buzzwords, but important initiatives that are unfolding right now. Um, I, in particular, have a panel on JADC2, um, the Defense Department's uh, big push for next generation command and control. And I want to get down to some of the misconceptions around JADC2 and, and really hopefully carry the conversation for some new details about what's unfolding. Um, same thing for a panel I have on 5G. I've really been encouraging uh, all of the experts who are joining us um, for these discussions to bring us something new, bring the audience something they don't know about a project um, or uh, or other announcements that they're working on. And so um, I'm pretty hopeful that that might come uh, from the 5G and and next generation communications panel. And then finally, I have another one-on-one um, -on -one talk with the acting director of the Defense Innovation Unit, uh, Mr. Mike Madsen. Uh, he's been a major player in terms of DOD innovation. And, and I'm very curious to hear about what his priorities are serving uh, following the director, Mike Brown's exit this month. I'm especially interested in that conversation, Brandy, because the title of it is Lessons from Ukraine, How Conflicts Are Evolving with Commercial Technology. And the thing about it that's fascinating to me is what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine is, yes, commercial technology, but not necessarily in the hands only of the military services. We're seeing just citizens conveying information directly to the military about locations of uh, Russian forces that they see on the ground. And it's just incredible amounts of, of data and information being exchanged on that battlefield. And I'll be really curious to see what his vision might be to how that could work for the United States at some point in time. Absolutely. Um, and I appreciate that because I came up with the title, but it was based off of a conversation I had with him about sort of what he really wants to share and discuss. Um, it's something we're certainly seeing. Uh, I've literally was on a call with some other DOD experts yesterday um, who were speaking on that topic of, of sort of the citizen journalists and the citizen people within Ukraine who are tech savvy um, and, and really pushing forward uh, for their nation with this technology. So I think that's something we're going to cover. I'm really interested in sort of hearing um, anything DIU has done on its part to support that with commercial contractors here in the U.S. And so hopefully it'll make for some great conversations. All right, we'll look forward to those. And we're going to feature some of those on next week's Defense Scoop podcast. It's great to talk to both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Francis. You can see the rest of the lineup for Defense Talks and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Army's pilot program to let soldiers use their own devices is underway. The chief information officer of the Army, Raj Iyer, says if it works the way the Army thinks it will, the service will save money and operate more efficiently. 
Joel Bagnall is director of federal at SpyCloud. He's former principal Homeland Security and counterterrorism advisor to the president of the United States. Joel, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. We went through a, a really exciting period of organizations and government talking about BYOD probably five to 10 years ago, and then the idea kind of died out. What's your perception of the reason that BYOD is back in the limelight, at least in the military realm and government? Welcome. Francis, thank you for having me on the show. I think the biggest challenge that reinserted the program after it died out five years ago is the the user continues to want to bring their own device to the workplace and to the battlefield and to the um, environment that they are going to be working in. And so we've got to figure out a way to accommodate that behavior with security in mind and also tie the device into the overall architecture so that we're developing this continuous monitoring, not only of the data, but of the device itself to ensure that if there is a mistake made by the user, that there is a back uh, channel way of ensuring that we have a, a minimum level of security. What has happened technologically over those five to 10 years since BYOD was hot the first time that allows the things that you just happened to be possible today where maybe it wasn't possible in that time period? Really, it's the uh, development of new architectures where we've converged uh, a whole bunch of different information systems at the unclassified level for the entire user group. That's been the biggest change. And the adoption of common architectures across cloud platforms that have uh, helped us move from fixed infrastructure and proprietary systems being used by even different units in the same service now the entire army, for example, is on the same platform. And so that has uh, been the biggest driver in adoption of, of BYOD. The second is just more maturity from a security perspective by the user. We are getting to the point now where cybersecurity is not an afterthought and it's not some special class you have to go through. It's inculcated in the everyday work culture of the soldier, the airman, the sailor, the Marine. And so um, we just have a better appreciation, understanding, and, and frankly, culture of security. So I think that's um, led to it. And then lastly, the, the technology for the devices that we're bringing to the workplace itself, much more mature, much more capable, much more, um, many more features that offer uh, security policies to be enacted in a pretty easy way. One of the, the the roadblocks back then was the idea of which devices the government would let on the network. And there was even talk for a time of like a hot list where, okay, here's a list of six or eight devices and we're going to choose one from each of the different operating systems because Blackberries were still hot then. And um, that, as long as somebody chooses one of those, that's allowed because we vetted that device that's completely out the window in 2022, isn't it? Something like that's not possible today, is it? There is going to be a list that we're going to maintain that's the minimum standard requirements. And we're not going to want, for example, ZTE or Huawei devices on U.S. Department of Defense uh, architecture for obvious reasons. Uh, nor are we going to want devices that uh, don't have a global commercial market representation uh, if they're bespoke or, you know, very 
small devices that uh, are don't have the security features and don't have a large OEM structure behind them for modifications and updates and security patches and the like, then those devices aren't going to be on the list. So we will st- we'll still maintain some sort of a list of, you know, here's your Android, Apple, and then others uh, that you can choose from. I'm just pretty happy we're not going back to the BlackBerry experience. I don't know about you, but I, uh, I think I'm... I'm happy we're not we're not going to go back to the tactile touch of the. I'll tell you though, there was an article that I think it was in the Wall Street Journal within the last six months or so about how people missed their Blackberries, and there was yeah. there's this still there's small club. I guess there's a club of people for just about everything that you can cook up in the universe. Exactly right. You, you talked a moment ago about the uniformity among platforms within the services. Is that a push that you expect to see continue? with uh, the push to JADC2 and the desire to be able to at least exchange information. And do you think that turns into a consolidation of at least architecture types so that one services structure can talk to the others? What, how do you see that playing itself out in the future? Yeah, I think there's going to be some level of consolidation, but there's also the requirement for segmentation and separation so that you don't have a single point of failure, single point of weakness, single point of vulnerability. Um, and so um, I would just guard that statement with, um, you know, the, the moniker of a double-edged sword. You, you want to have common policies and common operating platforms, but uh, the notion of a combined overall system uh, would leave us a little bit too vulnerable. That said, um, you know, with, with the cloud environment, with the JADC2 um, coming online, we are going to see much better integrations, the ability to draw in disparate data sets and draw in different type of devices is going to become much easier than it has been in the past. And so um, we will have common architecture and common integration uh, platforms and procedures in place to, to take on those data sets and devices. When you talked about platform evolution at the beginning of this conversation, Joel, you referred to technology at the unclassified level. Where do you think we're going as far as classified environments go? I think a lot of the same practices that we're learning right now um, on the unclassified side will eventually be migrated to the classified side. Um, we, with the exception of this, which is um, we're going to have government furnished equipment as opposed to BYOD when we get into classified systems, there will necessarily be um, inherent security functionality in the device itself um, when we're operating at the secret or, or higher levels. And so that'll be one of the biggest changes. But in terms of standardization of architecture, in terms of integration, and how are you using different elements of the architecture to be more efficient? Um, I think we'll see a lot of the things that we're experiencing right now in this pilot program adopted on, on the high side. We've talked about technology exclusively this uh, far in our conversation, Joel, but it strikes me that there's got to be a cost element to this too. Raj was at one of our FedScoop events not too long ago and talking about this program and said there's significant money to be saved here. Does that matter more as shrinking budgets, inflation, and all these other uh, fiscal financial elements become um, more top of mind? I think in this case, uh, the, you know, considering budget is always an, an important factor. Um, but I think in this case, it, the driving factor it was behaviors of 
soldiers, sailors, Army, and Marines that are bringing their own devices anyways. And, um, and the efficiency of being able to do what you would normally do with a government furnished equipment, you can do on your own device, as long as you've got the right security and connections afforded to that device. That was really the driving factor. Um, you know, we've gone through a number of experiments over the past 10 years where we've been, it's been like almost three times where we said, bring your own device, don't bring your own device, bring your own device, don't bring your own device. And finally, you know, we're now at a point where we're seeing some success with this. Um, but I think the, the, the benefit of cost savings is, is actually a, a secondary important, but I think it's, it wasn't a driving factor in this. It was, it was more about the fact that, you know, human behavior is such that people are going to bring their own devices. We need to accommodate it. Is this the last mile potentially of the conversation that's been going on in DOD? I've been hearing about it for maybe three or four years now about computing and, and warfighting capability at the edge. If, if, a if a soldier, sailor, airman, Marine, uh, guardian can take that device into combat with him or her, then it strikes me that that's the last mile. Am I on the right track there? Yeah, the tactical edge is wherever the leading point of the the formation is that's going into battle, and um, and so there's a kinetic slash human element to that, which is um, the soldier with all of his equipment and weapons and devices. Um, there is a cyber tactical edge to that component too, which is um, in a national security signals intelligence um, tactical edge, where you know you, you're you're beaconing, you're sensing, you're um, searching, you're collecting well beyond the kinetic end of of the tactical edge, and so that part in particular where national security systems and intelligence systems are feeding directly into the tactical edge where the where the soldier is with his byob device that's an exciting element of jadc2 that uh, we're just now really beginning to explore and how we can help make the soldier and the airman the operator much more effective much more capable having real time immediately available actionable information that that can influence the outcome of a battle and i want to be very clear uh for the listener uh lieutenant general morris in the army g6 is not saying in fact the the words he's using uh byod in tactical scenarios not at this time but that to me my take of that joel is that's code for it's it's something we'll consider at some point in the future it's Um, coming yeah it's coming Operationally, it strikes me the success measure of this pilot is, does this work? Are soldiers able to accomplish what they need to accomplish and we want them to accomplish using this application? Um, And security-wise, they're able to do that work securely um, with minimal uh, risk of, of breach. Are there other measures that you would think the Army will undertake as they look at whether this is working or not working? performance and whether or not you're getting operable performance out of the soldier with the device with the security parameters that have been established so the uh, one one example of that is the device the byob device um, is gaining access to the cloud uh, but it's not able to download files directly back to the device there's a security wrapper you can see displays but then the displays of, of information but then displays will naturally go away and there won't be any information saved on the local device and obviously for 
for reasons that the device is stolen or taken from the soldier or the soldier becomes incapacitated, then that device becomes a piece of intelligence that the enemy or adversary could use to their advantage. So are we, you know, since we're only giving the soldier the ability to have um, just view only access, does that create performance impediments when you may need to analyze and study or have access to that file that you would normally have if you were in a you know peacetime environment. So that'll be the other key indicator, I think, is how well it can be used. Joel Bagnell, great conversation. Thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Francis. Enjoyed it. You can read more about the Army's BYOD pilot in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. Hypersonics is one of the military's highest priorities. Russia and China are testing hypersonics, too. Bill LaPlante is Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. At the Defense News Conference, Defense Scoop's John Harper asks him about the U.S. military's hypersonics program. The services are all pursuing hypersonic weapons, various variants. A number of them are in R&D right now. But looking at the industrial base, you, you know, do they have the capacity to manufacture these on a large scale when they're ready to go? Not only the airframes, but all the various special components that go into those? Yeah, so John just asked probably, ding a ding, he got the best question. No, no offense, Joe, that's a great question. <laughs> because he, keep in mind, you know, the, the old joke about hypersonics, hypersonics is a weapon of the future for 60 years. We've never, ever produced and manufactured hypersonics ever in this country. It's been entirely S&T. Now, if you want to argue we did this, these prototypes, we'll debate over a beer what a prototype is versus manufacturing. And so the real question is what John asked, is are these companies ready to, no kidding, go into production at some degree of rate? And I ask this question, John, all the time, and I get reassurance that they're ready. But the proof will be in the pudding. But you know what? If we get when we get hypersonics into production, we should all pop champagne corks. That'll be remarkable because we have never had it in production. Hypersonics has been in the S and T community in this country forever. I love S and T, folks. I am an S and T person. But at some point, you got to let the children out. And so, John, I don't. I, I wish I could tell you a question that absolutely they're ready to produce it. They say they are. They will. But as you all know, anybody about hypersonics, whether it's glide vehicles or powered, you have very difficult materials issue, thermal management issue, aerodynamics issues. And so production is an art. And when you haven't done it before or you haven't done it for a long time, you have to relearn it. And there's learning that will happen. So I would ask all of you, to, if I could, and particularly people like John, to focus on the production of hypersonics. Not the S&T, not the shiny object, the production. Because the S&T is interesting, but until, you know, I was interested in China and Russia doing S&T on hypersonics, but once they went into production, that was, a, that was a game changer. So I didn't answer your question well other than saying it's a great question. Um, How optimistic are you that, uh, you know, this is all going to work out once they go into production? I am actually optimistic. Um, and I, without giving specifics, I've looked into and I've visited some of the companies that will do it. I know the people there. Um, they know the challenges that they have. But they're about one or, I mean, knock on wood or knock on carpet, they're about one to two years away from production for some of these hypersonic vehicles. And if we get there, hallelujah, that'll be a landmark 
that'll be a landmark. Bill LaPlante, the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment, answering questions from Defense Group's John Harper. John will interview Bill LaPlante one-on-one on stage at Defense Talks on Thursday. You can find a link to register for Defense Talks in today's show notes at defensescooppodcast.com. The Defense Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every week on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Defense Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Defense Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Defense Scoop podcast returns next Wednesday. I'm Francis Rose. I'll talk to you then. Thanks very much for listening.